0: Hi, I'm Diora and this is Broccoli Book Club. This is the Book Club episode. You can read along with us, make suggestions, send in your thoughts and comments via voice note. The episode format is split into three sections. We start at the front cover where we talk about our first impressions and expectations. Then we delve into the actual book and finally end at the back where we focus on our reflections and takeaways. This month we're discussing The Thought-Provoking Eating Animals by Jonathan Safran Foer. As a heads up, we like to interview the author as an addition to the book club episode. However, due to other exciting commitments, Jonathan wasn't available to join us this time. So why not celebrate more than one author exploring animal rights in their writing? Our next episode features the founder of PETA, Ingrid Newkirk, and author of Animal Kind. So make sure you add the book to your reading list. So, back to eating animals. Initially, I thought this book would try to convince me to go vegan and bang on about the importance of individual choices when it comes to consuming food. But I was quickly proven wrong. Instead, Jonathan takes us on a personal journey around America's factory farms and discusses the way his own relationship with food has been shaped over time. He begins the book by writing about his grandmother who survived the Second World War and explains how the context of food scarcity had influenced her approach to food, which was that nothing was to be wasted. I found this really relatable because my own family has hugely affected how I eat too. Like many other people, I feel like I've watched every Netflix documentary highlighting unethical practices in the food industry. But reading the information I thought I knew in a book was a very different experience. And in some ways, far more difficult because it was all laid out in front of me in black and white. Originally published in 2009, Jonathan analyzes how our mass consumption of animal product has severely impacted not only the animals we're artificially breeding, but also our global environment. In one chapter, he even goes on to write about how the destruction of environmental habitats can speed up the rate of pandemics, similar to the one we're experiencing today. All in all, it was very eye-opening to the point where I may or may not have gone vegetarian. Joining me in today's book club are Tasnim Sadiqa Amin and Rory Boyle. Tasnim is the official host of the Creative Access Book Club and Rory is the production assistant at Broccoli Productions and Broccoli Book Club.
1: I do really like... Non-fiction, I do. And I'm normally drawn to nonfiction over fiction. But I think if I saw this book, I would have looked at it and thought, oh, I know loads about veganism and vegetarianism and meat eating. I don't need to read that. But then if you'd stopped me and asked me to give you some hard facts about the meat industry or, you know, why it is ethical or unethical, I don't really think I would have been able to give you any concrete answers. I think because maybe of some of the Netflix documentaries I've seen, I kind of think I know more than I do. But when I was reading this book, as I'm sure we'll come on to, I realized that actually there was a whole lot I didn't know that really shocked me. So I would have walked past it. To be honest, I don't want to throw the Eating Animals design team under the bus, but it's a uh, very uninspiring cover, in my opinion. And I know we're not here to literally judge books by their covers but you know most of the information that I've gotten on veganism if it's not from Netflix it's probably been from a woman called Miley Cyrus and she to me is a lot more interesting than this book so it's strange because when you actually get into the book there's a lot of dark humor in there and it's not just spitting facts at you it's really not But this book to me from the cover seems to me like it would have been almost an inconvenient truth of vegan books. That's what I take away from the cover. Now, I don't actually think it is that when you get into it, but it wouldn't inspire me to pick it up. And I wouldn't have expected the content to be what it actually is.
0: And Tasna, what about you?
2: Yeah, I do like the style. I quite like books that don't have images because I think it can date the book. So I did quite like the understatedness of it's just text and Because of that, it makes me think that it's trying to put itself across as the seminal book that you come to if you're questioning whether to eat meat or not. So yeah, I think it's sort of putting it forward as a a classic, as a must read. And I would probably be persuaded by that if I was looking for a book because it's penguin, you know, it's this nice sort of light green, it looks very accessible.
0: Yeah. And did you have any expectations from the title, you know, Eating Animals? What did you think the book would be about, (laughs) apart from eating animals?
2: (laughs) Jonathan actually addresses this in the book that you might think that this was just a straightforward book, which was going to give you yet another argument for why you should go vegan. And that's exactly what I expected. I expected Peter Singer, but more mainstream sort of Michael Sandel, kind of pop philosophy, mainstream sort of for the everyman.
0: Mm-hmm. If I'm honest, if I saw this book, this green cover that just says "Eating Animals: Should We Stop?" It's just so inoffensive and just kind of like blends into the background that I think I wouldn't even notice it. And I think if I did, similarly to you, Rory, I probably would just think, "Oh gosh, I really want to read this," because you just know you're about to read stuff that's gonna completely question everything that you stand for. Let's delve into the book itself. I asked Rory and Tasnim what kinds of emotions they experienced while reading the book.
2: My flatmate actually just kept looking at me to see if I was okay because I was just like looks of horror and disgust and trying to, you know, hold my whatever just ate down. So yeah, there was quite a lot of that. Um, There was a shocking thing every chapter, even as I thought, okay, no, I've been shocked, but no, I was shocked again. So there's a lot of shock and horror and disgust. But there was also a lot of humour. I think that the emotional connection that he brings by introducing characters close to his life did add sort of a relatability, even though he lives a very different life to me, and I quite like that. So the grandmother, his wife, and also the testimonials, it was just so honest and frank, and yeah, it was uh, relatable, and yeah, made me laugh, and made me smile. So yeah, a lot of smiling as well, along with the disgust and horror.
1: Yeah, I felt similarly to that. There was definitely a lot of disgust and horror, but I think at the very beginning of the book, I was pleasantly surprised with the story about his grandmother at the beginning and learning a bit more about his family life, I wasn't expecting that because, as I said, I did think it was just going to kind of preach veganism at me. And I actually, on page five, there's a really beautiful quote where he talks about his grandmother and her relationship with food. And he says, food for her is not food. It is terror, dignity, gratitude, vengeance, joyfulness, humiliation, religion, history, and of course, love. And when I read that, I thought, okay, this is going to be a very different presentation on our eating habits in this current era and how they maybe are really bad and how our relationship with food is so toxic in many ways. I find it almost awkward how horrified I am by the food production that goes on around us on a daily basis that I was kind of blissfully ignorant to.
0: We really go on a journey with him and he begins the book in the state where he's questioning things and I think probably a lot of people reading this book will probably also begin questioning things and it was nice that he didn't come at it from like a really solid position where he was like no this is really bad you know he was asking those questions and posing them and then he went on this journey and we kind of went along on that journey with him and we also through his experience of different emotions so where he talks about you know his family and kind of like the memories and the history and the nostalgia we sort of are as pensive as he is and then when he goes and visits some of these slaughterhouses we're shocked and angry and I just thought that was a really beautiful way and a really excellent way of just telling the story for me my emotions were Mostly just disgust and and horror. <laughs> like, you know, obviously you can't look away because it's a book. You have to read every word. And I found that that was a very different experience to watching the Netflix documentaries where you could just close your eyes and pretend that 10 seconds that you saw... You didn't. Or actually, because also in the documentaries, they'll never show you the really horrific stuff because you can't air that. You can't put that in a documentary. It's too violent. Whereas when you've got it down in words, it's really graphic. It was mostly just disgust, really. But yeah, I actually had a question. So, you know, in the beginning where he talks about his pet dog, George and his attachment to her. He then adds in a dog recipe at the end of the chapter. What did you think of that? I am sick because I thought it was hilarious.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I am a fan of dark humour and I don't know if he meant for it to be firstly humorous and secondly a great point but for me it was mainly humorous I as I said I'm a Muslim and I grew up being told that dogs and pigs were dirty so unfortunately I am not the target audience here because I don't have any emotional connections with dogs so I thought it was really funny and I was just imagining people who did care about dogs and I know that makes me a bad person but um, I hold my hands up to it
1: See, it's a weird one i'm gonna say something as well that will probably go down badly with some people but i think the time has come for me to come out as somebody who is very indifferent to dogs i really have no feelings about them either way um i don't dislike them and we had pet dogs growing up all throughout my childhood one of which i did actually love and i did think of her when i read that recipe and i did think oh god that is quite horrible but in in general, when it comes to like my friends and their pets, I'm just indifferent. Dogs don't annoy me and I don't dislike them, but I also don't find them as cute as the average person. And so I think when I read that, it actually made me think about some of my friends who absolutely treasure their dogs as if they're their children. And I kind of thought, but you're also avid meat eaters. And so where do you draw the line? So points were definitely made. And like Taz, I did enjoy the dark humor of it. I did, even though it did leave me with some uncomfortable feelings. It was effective.
0: Yeah, it was definitely effective. And I think in some countries, as he said, it is a delicacy to eat dogs and it's a delicacy to eat lots of animals that we in the UK probably wouldn't eat, you know, it's not in our mass market and it's not really like within the British culture.
1: You know, what I was thinking of when I was reading this book was the horse meat scandal that was maybe about seven or eight years ago now. And I remember Tesco being right at the center of that scandal and I used to buy chicken from there and I used to always think their chicken tasted slightly different to (laughs) other supermarkets and not in a good way. So (laughs) the reason I bring that up is ever since then, I have actually stopped shopping at Tesco full stop. I could not tell you the last time I went into one. And they're a lot easier to avoid than you'd think. You just go to Sainsbury's instead. So I think (laughs) that that actually did convert me, but not because horses are fluffy and I grew up riding horses as a child because I didn't, but I think it does maybe slightly go back to the whole pet thing and I don't view them as food. And so that is something that this book definitely made me ponder over for a while.
3: You may have heard of the podcast, Juicy Scoop. Wondered what it is? Why aren't you listening? Well, I'm its host. Created it, been doing it for seven years. I'm Heather McDonald
0: have either of you ever had an emotional connection with an animal that is used for food?
2: Yeah, as I said, I'm not a pet person. Maybe it's odd to say, but I admire animals and I respect animals. And that's mainly come from my love of like fiction and literature and Aslan and (laughs) Lion King and things like that. And documentaries as well, not just fake animals and talking animals but real animals I have a real respect for the natural environment and I you know can appreciate the beauty and the kind of evolutionary beauty of animals and I'm fascinated by how ancient birds are and I'm I'm really interested in like whales and intelligence not necessarily out of this love for animals and therefore I won't eat them just respect for things and the natural world and their place in the world so and that's why I wouldn't eat a whale and that argument does sway me and I do think that I wouldn't eat an animal which I admired and respected even though I don't have a personal connection with it in terms of intellectually and from fiction and kind of giving them those symbolic characteristics I couldn't eat those animals. That's
0: really interesting I think that the conversation about intelligence, because obviously that's another thing that Jonathan does really well. He talks about like the different intelligence of the animals that we eat. And it is so interesting that like as soon as we realise that they do have a level of intelligence that we can't even comprehend, because of course we don't know to what extent animals can think and what they can do and mentally, you start thinking, hang on, why am I eating an animal that has its own conception of life?
1: That actually is one thing in the book that I have not been able to get my head around is the intelligence factor and what that says about us as humans, that it's fine to kill a defenseless animal if they're considered less intelligent than a pig, let's say. I don't have the answer on why we think it's okay to do that, and it's still something that leaves me feeling very, very uncomfortable about what it says about us as the human race. I don't know, Taz, if you could come up with any conclusion on that one, but I really couldn't.
2: Yeah, well, I think it's to do with personhood and the characteristics which make someone more a person in our eyes. And I'm not saying this is black and white, but I think intelligence is definitely, for me, the top tier attributes of what it is to be a person I think after that is things like empathy and then there's a pain and consciousness and I think for me it's a matter of degree I do eat animals I will continue to eat animals and I have had this conversation growing up with many people vegans vegetarians meat eaters meat lovers and for me it's a matter of degree and if they have intelligence What that signifies to me is that not only are they empathetic and suffer, but also they recognize that we witness that suffering. That notion, I think, is exactly why, for me, intelligence tells me not to eat that animal because I feel less shame.
0: Mm -hmm. Sorry to just keep going on about this intelligence thing, but. I think it is such an interesting argument and it's certainly a convincing one because as you said, Taslim, as soon as we realise that there are elements to animals that become almost human, you know, because we see intelligence as a kind of human condition and therefore we think, oh, if an animal is intelligent, then it's like eating another human and that's what stops us from eating it. But I actually think that it's slightly messed up that that's what it takes for people to like not eat an animal like and I'm saying that as someone who also feels similarly to what you just said you know about when you realize that animals are intelligent that's when you don't want to eat them but I just think like should it really take that for us to not eat animals you know even if they weren't intelligent why do we think that we have a right to kill another life just because we don't understand it. Um, and yeah, like, because then it can slide into a really weird discussion about intelligence and ability and who deserves to live and who doesn't deserve to live. If you're not an intelligent being, do you not deserve to live? You know, and that, that just makes me feel so uncomfortable because if we were talking about humans, that would be like a really horrific conversation, but yeah. when it comes to animals, it's like we have this disconnect.
1: But I hear you completely on what you're saying there. You know, it became very clear to me when reading this book from very early on that we were going to look at how we treat humans and how we would never treat humans in the way we treat animals. And, you know, by page 13 there's almost a comparison to abortion. On page 93, we compare raping an animal to eating one. And on page 212, there are pro-slavery arguments. And, you know, I think that just highlights the intensity of this book. I'm not saying that I agree or disagree with those comparisons. I actually think in some cases they're a bit problematic and I don't really like comparing struggles or hardships and, and other forms of discrimination. I think it can get very messy but I think it just emphasizes how intense of a read the book was
0: okay so I just want to know what was the most shocking thing that you read if we aren't
2: all thinking the same thing like I don't know I'm I'm intrigued to hear what you guys go with but for me it's when the detail I think towards the end of the book of the cow being skinned alive and that was because the way that they try and make the animal unconscious is by design not effective and they won't kill them beforehand because they need to bleed the cow out as quickly as possible so it's more profitable. That whole sequence, I don't know if it went on for like three pages but it felt like it went on forever because the amount of detail and in that intentional cruelty is just I i, I just I, it's burnt in my memory.
1: Yeah I think similarly you know the part of the book where Jonathan gives us the definition of a lot of different terms and what they mean that you know will be further referenced throughout the book on page 56 he describes a downer which is an animal that collapses from poor health and is unable to stand back up and he says this does not imply grave illness any more than a fallen person does. Some downed animals are seriously ill or injured, but often they require little more than water and rest to be spared a slow and painful death. And obviously a lot of them do experience that kind of death. And there were probably more horrific things in the book than that. But for whatever reason, just that image of an animal being deprived of water and being so weak that it's A downer. It just, it's like an image I couldn't get out of my mind. I was picturing a little chick or something that, you know, I would have seen on an Irish farm back in the day. And to think that a little animal could be experiencing that, like it still upsets me just thinking about it now. So that's one thing that really stood out to me.
0: You know, I think the shocking stuff was all those kind of investigations and uncovered videos of deliberate cruelty and no one seeing any consequences. Because if there were consequences, then we'd have to question everything that these companies are doing. And the most disgusting thing is that they can just buy themselves out of it because they are so rich. Even though these companies can get sued and they have to do a big payout, they are effectively earning far more per hour, you know, than they ever have to pay out in a single amount of time. And that's what feels so shocking. And it shouldn't be shocking, because we know that that's how the world operates now. But really seeing it kind of in black and white, it felt like injustice. Also, just one thing I wanted to say was, sorry, but in the middle of this book, which was written 12 years ago, he writes about pandemics. When you got to that bit of the book, were you like, wait, what is happening? Because he basically describes the coronavirus pandemic and the reality we've been living through in the past year and a half. So did you find that shocking? I mean, I was reading the pandemic stuff and I just thought, this feels like a prophecy.
1: Yeah, I mean, there's a paragraph that says, the world may be on the brink of another pandemic. All countries will be affected. Widespread illness will occur. Medical supplies will be inadequate. Large numbers of deaths will occur economic and social disruption will be great i mean that's what we're living in at the moment in the nutshell and the funniest part of that is and this shows like the cynic in me i think if i'd read that at the time i almost would have skipped over that chapter and been like okay jonathan go and get some water and i'll be back in another chapter you know i just i would have disregarded it so yeah that part is crazy because it is exactly what's happening right now
0: Yes Haslan what did you think about the pandemic section yeah i had heard
2: that before and i studied history at university and i and i know how regular pandemics are so i wasn't really surprised by that and uh yeah sure we are more technologically advanced and we assume that if these things happen they're nipped in the bud but you know as quickly as our science develops, so does evolution, especially if we're breeding them in the way that we are. So, no, it, it didn't surprise me. And I had read quite a few scientists that have said this kind of thing is a case of prediction. It's just the case of whether we can outsmart
0: it or not. So we've mentioned a few of the people that he mentions in the book. So, you know, he introduces us to C, to Frank... Paul, Bill, and Nicolette. But whose story resonated with you the most?
1: I thought the testimonies were great because I think that they added a lot of different perspectives. And I also love the fact that they did smash that stereotype that I had of the book was just going to be one note and it was going to be very fact based and throw all this info at us. So All those testimonies definitely helped humanize a lot of these ideas and experiences. I think, to me, the one that I actually was the most engaged with was C simply because we never learn their true identity and what's happening in that scenario you can't help but feel the drama and the excitement and the anxiety and intensity of that moment where you know they sneak into somewhere they're not supposed to be they're uncovering all of these horrible things happening to these animals that they are essentially saving, um, as Jonathan, I think, puts it in the book. And I just love that intrigue and mystery of there's only so much that we know about sea.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, I actually really liked Bill. He was a vegetarian rancher. I thought that was such a fascinating story. You know, a vegetarian rancher? What? But yeah, I think I really, really kind of where I'm at with it In terms of the whole conversation, I think I've probably aligned with him the most. Like I do still think that there is such a thing as sustainable and ethical farming if done right. But it really has to be done right. And actually, in the book, it's really sad because he gets pushed out of his own company. And it shows the reality of what sustainable farming is actually looks like and the limitations of sustainable farming. Do you think there is such a thing as ethical farming, you know, or saving animals from the wild? Like, do do you think that can work as an answer to the problems that the food industry poses? Yeah, it's part of the solution.
2: It's not the only solution for sure. But we could see from the descriptions of Frank and the others and the farming that they did and the suffering caused to those animals, even though before and after, you know, we don't know what's happening, but that's because that's part of a system you could see there's a difference in terms of how they live. And yeah, they might be aware that slaughter is to come, but it's better. And I think it can't be one or the other. So I think it's part of the solution. I think the other part of the solution is, yeah, people eat too much meat. It's too easily accessible. It's too cheap. So if we made it sustainable and the prices went up, really, the economy does the rest, doesn't it? Because... People aren't going to be able to afford so much. And maybe we can go back to a time where it is something that is valuable and you have it, you know, when you can.
0: Mm-hmm. And Tasnim, were there any testimonies that resonated with you the most? It's
2: hard to pick. I think it was just really humanising. And I think it's what made the book for me why I wanted to keep reading because this was real people's lives and I think without those testimonies I don't think it would have had touched me so deeply as much as I agree and disagree and have my philosophical and political points. I think those testimonies really brought it home because I don't really relate with the animal but the way in which some of those obviously are touched by the animals and their descriptions of their love for their turkeys. I, I,
0: I felt that. So, we've thoroughly dissected eating animals and have reached the back cover. I asked Tasnim and Rory what kind of steps they're going to take with their diets after everything they've learned from this book.
1: Sorry, J-Dog, I don't think it's changed my mind. I just think that with my current situation, I'm very limited in what I can eat. I will say that... It's changed my outlook on the industry as a whole because I've learned so much that I didn't know about it. And I think that there will definitely be certain restaurants and certain types of meat that I will avoid forevermore. I know Chipotle seemed to be on his green list in terms of pork. So if I'm going to eat pork, I guess I'm going to stop at Chipotle. But no, it hasn't overly changed my eating habits. Mm
0: -hmm. And what about you, Tasman? I think... I now and then need
2: to read a book like this because these aren't arguments that I'm unfamiliar with. I've, you know, as I said, I've, I've gone back and forth between vegetarianism and veganism. And a lot of the arguments are the same, but for me, it's almost like a renewal. I need that extra dose now and then to remind me why I substitute. Because what always happens is I'll find like the reason and I'll feel like really strongly about it and I'll start changing my behaviours. And then some of those will stay and some of those will slip away. And every now and then, I just need to do another reminding myself of why I now don't drink dairy milk and I only eat fish you know when I go out and all of these rules like where they come from oh yeah this is why so for me I'm really glad I read this book because it's renewed the reasoning behind what I do and what I continue to strive to do which is cut down on my meat and dairy.
0: Yeah I feel so similarly to you about the renewal. <laughs> it feels like a renewal and a, a reminder. <laughs> of, yes, a renewal of vows to, to vegetarianism. It just feels like a reminder of why I've attempted these diets 20 times before. But it does just also makes me, make me think, gosh, like the food industry has a death grip on us. Like after those pages of reading about the deliberate cruelty, I just feel Dirty giving my money to corporations that essentially fund that and don't punish that. So that's kind of how I feel. And finally, who would you recommend this book to? If you could give it to one person that you know, who would it be?
1: I don't want to throw restaurants under the bus because I know it's been a very hard year. But I was in Soho pre pandemic. I can't name and shame the restaurant because I don't know its name but it was <laughs> bright red and there was red neon lights and this particular restaurant was priding itself on the fact that they served meat in all its forms there was meat hanging you know from the walls in the window and it was just very ott and look i still eat meat so i can hardly judge but i think there's something to be said for not glorifying cruelty against animals. And to me, that's almost what that restaurant was doing. It was very much a middle finger to anybody who is vegetarian, flexitarian, vegan. That's how I read their advertisement, their presentation of their restaurant. So I would like to give it to the owner of that restaurant. And I don't think I'm going to be changing his or her mind, but just maybe have them rethink, you know, their approach to meat.
0: For me, I think I would give the book to my family. Sorry, that's not one person. My mum, my stepdad. Because I really care about their health and I want them to see where I was coming from and I'm not just like this kind of person who's, oh, she, she, she's grown up in the West and she thinks she's better than everyone else and now she can just like ditch meat and preach from her like vegetarian high horse or something. So that would be my choice. I would recommend it to my
2: American friends that I went to university with. And their husbands. (laughs) Um, Because I think this book, I do think, is written for Americans. And I think that's where they're going to get the most impact, especially because he does place the family value of how he came to this journey again and stuck to it. Because he married his wife and he had a son. And he thought, how can I? pass on my culture but also look him in the eye when I discuss these things and I think that's why I would recommend it to those friends.
0: Thanks to Tasnim and Rory for contributing to this episode and thank you for listening to Broccoli Book Club. In next month's book club we'll be discussing This Changes Everything Capitalism versus Climate by Naomi Klein. So get reading now and send in your thoughts and comments via voice note to voice note at broccolicontent.com. Don't forget to share the podcast and join the conversation using the hashtag broccoli book club. And if you liked what you heard, why not subscribe and leave a review on your favorite podcast app. I've been your host Diora and you can find me on Twitter or Instagram at the Diora. Broccoli Book Club is produced by Jarja Muhammad, assistant produced by Rory Boyle, executive produced by Renee Richardson and mixed by Rob Fincham. This is a Broccoli Production.